We have known for years that patients with prediabetes can have the onset of diabetes prevented or delayed by intensive lifestyle intervention. Current guidelines suggest screening for diabetes and prediabetes in at-risk patients. So over time, more at-risk patients with normal tests will have a result consistent with prediabetes. What are the impacts of lifestyle interventions in this patient population? Welcome to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD. I'm Dr. John Buse, and joining us to explore prediabetes and the impacts of lifestyle interventions is Dr. Samuel DeGogo-Jack, a professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at the University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center in Memphis. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, John. My pleasure. As background, what are the current guidelines telling us about screening for diabetes and prediabetes? And in particular, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force has embraced screening for diabetes and prediabetes. Is that correct, Sam? That is correct. And that could not have come at any time sooner because for decades, the ADA has drawn attention to the stages of metabolic impairment before clinical diabetes is diagnosed, and more recently has been promoting the idea of screening asymptomatic people for diabetes and prediabetes. And the targeted screening has looked at people with risk factors, people who are overweight or obese, and I might add those who have a family history of type 2 diabetes. Uh, so basically all adults, uh, <laughs> most adults in the population should be eligible for a simple uh, blood screening for prediabetes. Yeah. And, you know, to get more specific, I think the recommendations are uh, in general people 35 to 70 with overweight or obesity. And remembering that in Asian Americans, overweight is all the way down to a BMI of 23 and not a great deal of preference about using the fasting plasma glucose test or a hemoglobin A1C or an oral glucose tolerance test. Do you have any preference in clinical practice about what kind of screening test you do? The simplest would be the fasting glucose, provided there was verifiable or reasonable duration of fast, somewhere between 18 and 14 hours of fast. It's cost-effective, simple, reproducibility is better. The far end of preference will be the oral glucose tolerance test. There are arguments in favor of maybe increased yield, but the methodologic problems are not trivial. And for wide, large-scale community screening, screening centers and community physician hospitals probably are ill-equipped to go through the standardized provisos and precautions needed to get a fairly reproducible oral glucose tolerance test. And people have defaulted to the A1C as uh, a tool that is agnostic as to fasting conditions uh, that has a stronger pre and post analytic stability of sample and uh, somewhat better reproducibility than OGTT. For prediabetes, however, we do have factors that can disrupt the presumed tight correlation between A1C and average blood glucose at the lower ends of the glucose range, sufficient stochastic disruption to have individuals be at risk of being overdiagnosed or underdiagnosed with prediabetes 
if we used just the A1C. There are also data that certain ethnic groups are more liable to have a false flag A1C with regard to the level of blood glucose. So they tend to have measurably higher A1C levels compared with their ambient blood glucose levels. So if you had a group of African-Americans or Latinos, as has been published, and in the Diabetes Prevention Program data set, even Asian-Americans, and then you have a comparison group of uh, European uh, descended uh, Americans, and you made sure that their blood glucose profiles were similar, fasting and two-hour plasma glucose levels are similar, and you compare the A1C levels, you would be chagrined to find as much as 0.4.5% higher A1C among the non-European populations compared with European populations for the same blood glucose level. And this departure is likely to be more bothersome, more troublesome in the pre-diabetes range because you would be more likely to label somebody with a, a state, a diagnosis, and in the early stages of diabetes with A1C 6.5 being diagnostic, if you could be wrong as much as half a percentage point in an individual from a certain population, then there could also be a risk of inappropriate treatment. Uh, heaven forbid you select a, a glucose-lowering agent, sulfonylurea, for somebody without first checking the glucose. So my approach has always been to use the A1C as a convenient tool that does not require fasting. But when levels return at the low marginal borderline territories, to always recommend confirmation with actual blood glucose measurement. After all, diabetes is a disorder of glucose metabolism not of A1C metabolism. The fact that A1C is available as a test is a convenience tool, not a replacement for the primary disorder of glucose and carbohydrate metabolism. Very eloquently stated. Uh, but let's dive into your study now. So the study uh, was published uh, recently in the BMJ Open Diabetes Research and Care. The study's name, Pathobiology and Reversibility of Prediabetes in a Biracial Cohort. Tell me a bit about what were your primary objectives in conducting this study? The pathobiology and reversibility of prediabetes in a biracial cohort study, PROP-ABC for short, is a spin-off from the parent study that has the acronym of POP-ABC, P-O-P-A-B-C, which is simply the pathobiology of prediabetes in a biracial cohort. That study was initiated back in 2006 and set as its goal the definition of the biological basis for progression from normal glycemia to prediabetes among high-risk African-American and European-American individuals. The goal was to follow them, and we did follow them every three months for five years for the primary outcome of progression from normal to prediabetes. So at the end of five years, when we published our finding that race ethnicity was not a predictor of progression from normal glycemia to prediabetes among individuals 
that were similar in terms of parental diabetes burden, we also published several other determinants, physiological measurements we made, insulin sensitivity, insulin secretion, adipocytokines, amino acids, metabolomics, so many things that differed between those who remained normoglycemic and those who moved on to prediabetes. We call these markers predictors of escape from normoglycemia. We received funding in 2012-2013 to invite the original pop ABC participants back and then continue to follow those who had not yet developed prediabetes, follow them when they change from normal to prediabetes, and at the same time, offer lifestyle intervention to the 30% or so whom we had previously ascertained to have departed from normal and arrived at the prediabetes state. So what we then did over the next five years was to roll into lifestyle intervention any newly occurring cases of prediabetes whilst already harvesting the pre-existing cohort who are pre-diabetic into the lifestyle itself. And we know from my experience in the Diabetes Prevention Program, DPP, that lifestyle works. We've got about 15% risk reduction relative to placebo in the risk of progressing from pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes. We could time the development of pre-diabetes to a finite duration give or take three to six months. And since that was uh, a unique property of our cohort, we decided to test the hypothesis whether duration of time in the pre-diabetes state, whether that duration was an important predictive variable as to whether lifestyle intervention would work very well or not work well at all, in either reversing the pre-diabetes back to normal glucose regulation and or preventing its progression to type 2 diabetes. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD. I'm Dr. John Buse, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Samuel DeGogo-Jack about pre-diabetes and lifestyle interventions. So Sam, you set the table. I love this paper, but you have to share the results with the audience. What happened to these people with prediabetes? Well, as a group, they were very, very responsive to the lifestyle intervention, diet and exercise, basically, which we modified in them. And 93% of them did not develop type 2 diabetes. And nearly 44% no longer had prediabetes. They had reverted to what we call normal glucose regulation. Among these hundreds of individuals, we now have opportunity to uh, treat with lifestyle intervention. They had had prediabetes for a short period, three months, six months, or three years, three to five years, or more than five years since we've been monitoring them since 2006 with the start of the pop ABC study. So we divided the lifestyle intervention recipients into those who had had prediabetes for the shortest duration, less than three years. In that group, people had had it for as short as just three months. 
And then an intermediate group, people whose pre-diabetes was diagnosed three to five years before they made their first visit to the lifestyle counseling session. And then a third group, the longest duration had had pre-diabetes diagnosed five years or longer before they arrived at the lifestyle intervention uh, clinic for their first session. For as long as individuals were referred for lifestyle intervention, 50% of them, the pre-diabetes did not get worse. 44%, it went away. And in only about 7% or so did it worsen to diabetes. So our study confirms and extends the previously reported landmark studies regarding the highly effective nature of modest lifestyle modifications, specifically increased caloric expenditure from physical activity and decreased caloric intake from saturated fat and carbohydrates. The impact of these modest changes in locking in substantial metabolic benefits among those who have prediabetes, either by preventing them from sliding further to diabetes or even better, erasing the prediabetes and resetting their metabolic clock, if you will, to back in the days when they had pristine normal glucose regulation. It's really exciting. You know, 93% non-progression is extremely impressive when we compare to other interventions. And doing this in the African-American community, really important for a community that's suffered such disparities in outcomes in diabetes. I'm sure you have aspirations for how this gets translated into clinical practice. Could you tell us about that briefly? What do you think we should be doing tomorrow, next week in our clinics? John, that is the, that is the point, and I'm glad you brought it up. There are more than 90 million Americans with prediabetes right now. The vast majority are unaware of their status, and their caregivers are also largely unaware because they're either not screening or not digesting the screened data. So the opportunity here is to increase and amplify the US Preventive Task Force recommendations, the ADA guidelines, and the numerous other authoritative associations guidelines by raising the, the, the volume of the drum beat in primary care environments. The current something that needs to be done does not necessarily involve chemicals, medications, or molecules. It involves a heart-to-heart -heart talk with the patient to apprise them of the clear and present danger of future harm that can be averted by present action and to expose them to the DPP type protocol, which is now on the Centers for Disease Control website and quite widely known now of modest reductions in caloric consumption and modest increases in physical activity maintained and repeated three to five times a week as a habit. And that these non-pharmacological approaches when prescribed by meaningful and well-informed clinicians can yield dividends beyond measure. We need to expand our consciousness that 
the correct expectation is that any individual's blood glucose result or A1C result can give information of one of three natures, normal, pre-diabetic, or diabetic. We had been operating in the binary mode. We need to go into the ternary mode and get insert the pre-diabetic intermediary halfway house in our thinking consciousness so as to trigger appropriate clinical behavior. Well, thank you so much. That's so well said. And with those insights in mind, I want to thank you, Dr. Sam DeGogo-Jack, uh, for sharing your insights on pre-diabetes and lifestyle interventions. And uh, I really appreciate your joining us. Thank you, Dr. Buse, for the opportunity to talk about our work. For ReachMD, I'm Dr. John Buse. To access this episode and others from our series, visit reachmd.com slash diabetes discourse, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.